Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. You're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. And before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to their elders past and present and also emerging. Um, now, today I've invited Judith Rodriguez to come back to the studio to talk about Australian Aboriginal poetry. Good morning, Judith. Good morning, Di. Nice to see you again. Oh, nice to be here. And um, now, Judith's been teaching poetry writing for many decades um, in Australia and overseas and also locally at the Council of Adult Education. And one of the things that Judith has said to me in the past is that she's noticed that many um, students have not read very many different kinds of poetry. So uh, we've been exploring all kinds of poetry together on the Spoken Word program, um, 20th century poetry and, uh, and South Indian poetry. So today we're going to talk about Aboriginal poetry and read some. So Judith, where would you like to begin? Oh, I'll begin uh, probably in the middle of the 20th century, but first I should say it really would be best, speaking of Aboriginal poetry, to have an Indigenous poet speaking. Still, as one who admires and rejoices in that poetry, I'm not the worst person to speak about what I have admired and why I rejoice in it. A poet in the middle 20th century, like the painter Rex Ingemels, William Hart Smith and especially Roland Robinson were deeply aware of traditional Aboriginal song and they wrote about some of the traditions they knew. They sometimes tried to imagine how Aborigines saw the land they lived in and the creatures who signified much more than simply game or ornaments to the bush, animals who had a place in their dreamtime stories and so a continuing role as guides, omens, cohabitants in their lives, even in a much whitened Australia. To his credit, Les Murray anthologised some of these poems in his 1986 New Oxford Book of Australian Verse, in which he also placed excerpts from Aboriginal song cycles and poems by Indigenous poets of today. But this is running ahead. In the late 1950s, when no Aboriginal poet's words appeared in anthologies, I met a woman called Kath Walker at ballad singing sessions at the poet John Manifold's in Brisbane. Kath lived nearby in Wynnum, but she had been brought up in her Nunakal people at the Myoram Mission on Stradbroke Island. Did John Manifold know that she wrote poetry or would write it? Possibly. I didn't. In 1964, her book We Are Going was published, first in the United States and later in Australia. The rather exalted critics of the day, 
Pope, Macaulay, etc., thought good poetry would come out in Morocco-bound volumes with gilt palimpsests and would work in the field of international and prestigious English literatures. Some, not those but others, believed that if six volumes of Australian poetry were published in one year, it was probably five too many. <laughs> they treated We Are Going as naive, unskilled and unnecessarily strident work because, of course, it was activist poetry. Reading it today, we can hear that Kath, or Ujuru as she chose to be, the name means paperbark, that she had enviable skill in using direct language, often in rhymed verse, in the service of the very urgent subject matter she had within and around her. The 60s were the decade of the bus rides with Charlie Perkins, the agitation which led to Aborigines winning the vote in 1967, and the continuing push towards social acceptance and respect. And here is what Ujuru had to say. This poem is called Colour Bar. When vile men jeer because my skin is brown, this I live down. But when a taunted child comes home in tears, fierce anger sears. The colour bar, it shows the meaner mind of moron kind. Men are but medieval yet, as long as lives this wrong. Could he but see the colour-baiting clod is blaming God, who made us all and all his children he loves equally. As long as brothers banned from brotherhood you still exclude, the Christianity you hold so high is but a lie, just as a cant of hypocrites content with precedent. And this is one written to her son Dennis. My son, your troubled eyes search mine, puzzled and hurt by colour line. Your black skin soft as velvet shine, what can I tell you, son of mine? I could tell you of heartbreak, hatred blind. I could tell of crimes that shame mankind, of brutal wrong and deeds malign, of rape and murder, son of mine. But I'll tell instead of brave and fine, when lives of black and white entwine and men in brotherhood combine. This would I tell you, son of mine. And then there's a very touching one um, about a coloured maid called Kukalingi, written for a particular person, Elsie Lewis. Kukalingi, now all day, station cook in white man's way, dressed and fed, provided for, sees outside her kitchen door ragged band of her own race, hungry nomads, black of face. Never begging, they stand by, Silent, waiting, wild and shy, for they know that in their need Kukalingi gives them feed. Peeping in, their deep dark eyes stare at stove with wide surprise, pots and pans and kitchenware, all the white man wonders there. Kukalingi, lubra still, spite of white man's station drill, knows the tribal laws of old. Share with others what you hold. 
Here's the age-old racial call. What we have belongs to all. Now she gives with generous hand white man tucker to that band, full tin plate and panikin to each hunter, child and gin. Joyful on the ground they sit, with only hands for eating it, then upon their way they fare, bellies full and no more care. Kukalingi, lubris still, feels her dark eyes softly fill, watching as they go content, natural as nature meant. And for all her place and pay, is she happy now as they? Wistfully she muses on something bartered, something gone. Songs of old remembered days, the walkabout, the old freeways, blessed with everything she prized, trained and safe and civilised. Much she has that they have not, but is hers the happier lot? Lonely in her paradise, Kukalingi sits and cries. Beautiful work from Ujiru Nunakul. And her most well-known poem, because it's the title poem of this first book, is called We Are Going. They came into the little town, a semi-naked band, subdued and silent, all that remained of their tribe. They came here to the place of their old borer ground, where now the many white men hurry about like ants. Notice of estate agent reads, Rubbish may be tipped here. Now it half covers the traces of the old borer ring. They sit and are confused. They cannot say their thoughts. We are as strangers here now, but the white tribe are the strangers. We belong here. We are of the old ways. We are the corroboree and the borer ground. We are the old sacred ceremonies, the laws of the elders. We are the wonder tales of dreamtime, the tribal legends told. We are the past, the hunts and the laughing games, the wandering campfires. We are the lightning bolt over Gappenbar Hill, quick and terrible, and the thunderer after him, that, after him, that loud fellow. We are the quiet daybreak paling the dark lagoon. We are the shadow ghosts creeping back as the campfires burn low. We are nature and the past, all the old ways gone now and scattered. The scrubs are gone, the hunting and the laughter, the eagle is gone, the emu and the kangaroo are gone from this place. The borer ring is gone, the corroboree is gone, and we are going. It's a, it's a tragic vision, isn't it? It is, but um, I'd like to give Kath a lot of credit because despite the indignation, uh, she does have, uh, 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 she sees the damage clearly, but she also sees beyond, uh, as in that poem, Son of Mine. She has later books of poetry and of new-knuckle traditional stories for children, absolutely enchanting. And these amplify her role as a significant pioneer of Indigenous writing, despite the amazing but rather isolated feat of David Unipon in writing his 1930 Myths and Legends of the Australian Aboriginal, which has been reprinted. Perhaps seeing the damage clearly but seeing beyond it, with Ujuru, was the legacy of a less scarred people at the mission than those with tribal memories of massacre. 
Her later books of poetry um, are, oh, I haven't got them here. There are three of them, and uh, they continue all the veins of writing that I touched there. In 1976, several miracles occurred for Australian poetry. It was the year when Vin Buckley published his The Golden Builders. Carlton, the Melbourne suburb, lives in its its ever-changing life under William Blake's phrase. It is a great poem to the fore among Australia's many poems of place and as suits Melbourne with a toe into the Europeanness of much of our literature. That same year, Professor Ronald Burnt, who with his wife Catherine Burnt had for decades been researching in the Northern Territory, published his Love Songs of Arnhem Land and Three Faces of Love. The second book is a simpler, shorter version. There had been fragments of such songs in scholarly articles, but Burnt brought before the general reader for the very first time a coherent large body of traditional song from the Yirrkala people in the Northern Territory, with texts placing these in the social life of the Yirrkala and illustrations drawn by Aboriginal artists. The song cycles celebrate the seasonal and daily tribal life, not balking at the erotic content of fertility rites and giving a rich sense of a settled and known universe surrounding that life. Their landscape poems, their action songs, their songs of ritual celebration. And there's also a section of small love poems. Remember, the Greeks had Sappho.
was a track taken from the Gurumul uh, CD Rakala, Juwalawar. Um, and uh, today on 3CR Spoken Word, we're talking to Judith Rodriguez. Uh, my name is Di Cousins. And we're talking about and listening to Aboriginal poetry. So um, you were just talking about the song cycles that were recorded by Brent. Yes. Um First of all, however, I'm going to read you two tiny sections which might be more modern. One is by Puji Gwangu, and it's about an aeroplane. The ground drops back. Where the dust still whirls, billowing from crusty Morgana strip, up and up the magician makes the slim body climb steadily, Up and up twists the engine's song till the double wings are level in the windless sky. Then the clever pilot tunes the engine down and and aims quietly on high. It dwindles in the west. This next piece is from an actual song cycle and to my surprise it had a personified son as a woman. It comes... From the Dungulg song cycle of the Mudbara people in Wave Hill, Northern Territory. The day breaks, the first rays of the rising sun stretching her arms, daylight breaking as the sun rises to her feet, sun rising, scattering the darkness, lighting up the land, with disks shining, bringing daylight as the birds whistle and call. People are moving about, talking, feeling the warmth. Burning through the gorge, she rises, walking westwards, 
wearing her waistband of human hair. She shines on the blossoming coolabar tree with its sprawling roots, its shady branches spreading. Well, that's just a little glimpse, but the song cycles themselves are immense structures, starting with the building of the huts, going on to the gathering of festive spirit, the behaviour of the birds and animals roundabout, and finally to the fertility rites. Song three of the Goldman Song Cycle. Get the clapping sticks and the didgeridoo, for we feel the urge for enjoyment. Hear the rhythmic beat and the singing of Goulburn Island people, clans from the Woolen River. Chests turn towards the cold west wind and the sound of the didgeridoo, rhythmically beating with the huts like a sea eagle nest. Sound from within the hut spreading across the country. Clapping sticks at the sand pit near Goulburn Islands at the place of western clouds and of standing clouds and at Millingimby Creek, opposite Millingimby at the place of coloured reflections. Sticks clapping within the huts. Sticks clapping for we feel the urge for enjoyment, invoking the western rain clouds. Sound rising like clouds wafted across the waters to Millingimby. Like, like clouds banking up, the sound hovers over the island of clouds, cold wind from the west striking their chests. It is ours! With this singing, the wind begins to blow, swaying the branches. Cold, stranger wind from somewhere, from Goulburn Islands. So what would have been the context for creating that poem? And it would have been an oral tradition. It is it? an old tradition. Oral one. Who knows how old these songs are. Obviously, Burns had to hear them, have somebody by him to help him transcribe them. They wouldn't have been written down before except by uh, fragments by a few researchers and then, of course, find a translation mode for them. Um, and um, and were they sort of shared? Do we know what sort of context in which they were shared? I don't know whether these were shared, whether they were sacred, um, whether they were the preserve of very few people. Uh, obviously, elders would have known uh, much more of them than other people in the tribe. What's significant about them is the way they see the landscape, the birds and the animals as being operative. For instance, setting up a row of clubs, they see them like a line of clouds in the west and then they see them bringing the clouds of the west and the rain. So there's an interaction between tools they've made themselves and arrangements they've made themselves and the way nature behaves. Mm. Uh, which is uh, quite extraordinary. Um, it has an invocatory function. Yes. Well, they are sacred songs yep. because they go with the fertility rites and obviously these take place predominantly at certain seasons of the year. Mm. Burnt deals with three very long song cycles, uh, somewhat different in flavour. Rose Bay Cycle, the Goulburn Island Cycle, and the Dilungug Cycle. Um, and then there's these little poems at the end, which are quite 
uh, surprising. One's rather rude. Her pubic covering is blown aside, revealing her vulva. <laughs> it also sounds a little clinical, doesn't it? It's sometimes hard to translate the mood, I think. Uh, yes. Uh, another one is simply she rests on the way following the creek back to the camp. Uh, the singer has been following her. And they meet and play together. Uh, so they're simply, as it were, notes uh, about um, a loving encounter. With their dilly bags full of gunny yams. Next, she blows on the sparks, making a fire. Um, yes, indeed, we don't know quite how these should be rendered in English, but there's the whole context of a full life, a natural life. Mm. Mm. Yeah, beautiful work. And after these great songs, it's idle to say that Australia had no literature when Cook and Philip viewed it, just as idle as not crediting the Mycenaean Greeks with a literature in the interval between Homer's creation of the Iliad and the Odyssey and the time when they were finally committed to parchment, because he didn't do it. They were preserved in memory. Uh, these Aboriginal songs are a glorious heritage. And swiftly, in 1976, there came a white response from Les Murray in his Bulladilatari holiday song cycle, in my opinion, his finest writing. Looking for a recurring season of social celebration, Les used the annual Christmas exodus to family in homes up the country, and that was in his own Northern Rivers corner of New South Wales. Uh, I shan't read it now because we're on about Indigenous writing, but in a way it's a wonderful example of inspiration by the ancient Indigenous heritage in the hands of a man of settler's stock. Well, thank you for coming in, Judith, um, and we'll continue the conversation about Aboriginal poetry next month. And we'll go back to a little bit of music from Gurumul. I'm 